Hello, all you lovely people. Welcome back to Love God and Your Neighbor. As always, I'm Pastor Laura Hutchinson from First Christian Church in Anniston, Alabama, and I am grateful you're here with me today. I pray that whatever happens while you're here, you and God are both blessed. If you live in the area of Anniston or Calhoun County, I hope that you're planning to be with us on Palm Sunday, March 28th, to worship in the sanctuary once more. Frida and Donald have been taking great pains to clean and sanitize all the surfaces in the church. Cammie and Jeremy met just this morning to prepare the nursery for our children, taking out most of the toys and leaving only plastic toys that can be easily disinfected by Mariana at the end of each day. On Tuesday, Judy and I are taping off the pews to help everyone sit six feet apart. And we've got the service all planned, and Gerald and Annie have already started practicing the music for that day, and everything is starting to come together. We still need people to sign up to be liturgists as soon as possible, as well as the deacons. We need you to sign up for your months of service this year. We have gone a whole year without a single volunteer helping during worship. So it's going to take a second to get all of that on track once more, but we can't do it without your willingness to help. And elders, I remind you to make sure that you've checked your email as Judy sent you all the elder schedules for the next quarter or maybe even for the rest of the year. Anyway, please make sure that you're able to serve on those days that you've been assigned and let Judy know if you need to switch with someone. God is so good to us and we are so blessed. It's important for us to gather together as followers and lovers of Christ Jesus to tell God how very grateful we are. That's what worship is all about, right? Yes, hopefully you hear a message that speaks to your heart, and hopefully you hear music that moves you, but the primary reason that we are here is to speak to God and to tell God how much we love the one who created us, the one who redeemed us, and the one who walks with us each and every day. Let us worship the Lord with all that we have today, and let us sing our hymn of praise. Praise my soul, the God of heaven. Knowing well our 
Today's scripture comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 23 through 35. Hear now the reading of God's word. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him, and as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children, and all his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves, who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he should pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. But if that light's under a bushel, it's for something kind of crucial. You've got to stay bright to be the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. But if that salt has lost flavor, it ain't got much in its favor. You can't have that salt and be the salt of the earth. So let your light shine before men let your light so shine so that they might know some kindness again we all need help to fill mine let's have some wine you are the city of God you are the city of God but if that city's on a hill it's kind of hard to hide it well God is a pretty in the city of God. So let your light so shine before men. Let your light so shine. So let them might know some kindness again. We all need help to feel fine. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. But the tallest candlestick
Please pray with me. Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So think about the parable that I just read to you, the one about the king who forgot, who forgave his slave and about the slave who did not forgive his fellow slave, his colleague. What do we call the parable that I just read to you? Well, the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible calls it the unforgiving slave, which is, of course, one way to look at it. I think that it could also be called the parable of the merciful king, don't you? Or the parable of the slave and the king, or uh, there's so many things that we could call it. But I guess in order to answer the question of what we should really call this parable, we have to first ask this question. What is this story really about? Is it about a king that forgives a slave? Or is it about a slave who doesn't forgive? Or is it about both, a king who forgives an enormous debt and a forgiven slave who doesn't do the same? Is it the parable about a king who forgives, who has mercy, and then longs to see that mercy and grace passed down among his subjects? Is it about passing on grace and mercy once you have received it? In order to really know what it's about, we have to first know that our parable today is a lesson in extreme contrasts. The first contrast being the amount of money owed by each of the debtors. The first slave owes his king 10,000 talents, which sounds like a lot to us, right? I mean, 10,000 of anything, that's a lot. The thing is though, a single talent at that time was the largest monetary unit that they knew or had. It was equal to the wages of a manual labor for 15 years. One talent was 15 years worth of wages for an average person. And 10,000 is the largest possible numerical unit at that time. So the combination is then the largest figure that can be given. To put it in perspective, the annual tax income of Herod the Great's territories was 900 talents per year. Herod the Great, he got 900 talents a year in taxes. The slave owed the king 10,000 talents. Imagine that kind of debt. Therefore, 10,000 talents would exceed the taxes for all of Syria, Phoenicia, Judea, and Samaria combined. The amount that the slave owes the king is intended to be fantastic, and it is, right? It's supposed to be beyond all calculation. Kind of like $1.9 trillion in stimulus, right? That, 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 that's kind of one of those numbers that's so beyond us we can hardly wrap our minds around it. That's how much this man owed. It's a sum of money that even the king could never pay. So we see that the slave owes the king more money than he 
that could ever have been conceived of at that time, while the other slave owed the first slave a year's worth of wages, which is a large sum to be sure, but it's really only one six hundred thousandth of what the first slave owed the king. A hundred denarii, one six hundred thousandth of 10,000 talents. So it's clear that the writer of Matthew wanted to illustrate the magnitude of God's grace for us, while also illustrating how God sees our inability to forgive others while they sin against us. And the parable successfully achieves Matthew's goals, don't you think? I do. If the money that the servant owes the king is representative of our sins against God, then all that we have done, especially by the end of our lives, should we live a good, long life, all of the sins that we have committed, that they have accumulated over the years, Imagine how large that debt we owe to God must be. It is beyond unforgivable. And yet, through Jesus, we are given mercy, and God forgives us for all of it. It's an overwhelming picture to wrap our minds around, at least it is to me. By talking about our sins as a monetary debt larger than the gross national income of the four largest countries and wealthiest countries in the world, the gospel writer is putting our situation into profound perspective, don't you think? It's like saying in order to get to heaven on our own merit, we not only have to climb Mount Everest, we have to climb four Mount Everests stacked on top of each other. And with the oxygen limits alone, That's an impossible task, even for the most accomplished climber, right? And instead of making us earn our way into God's eternal peace and God's eternal presence, God said it's simply not possible. They'll never be able to do it on their own. And so God became a person, one of God's own creation, And God took on the sins of all the people, even though he never committed a sin himself. And he took our sins from us once and for all. Now, instead of climbing now, instead of climbing four Mount Everest to get to God at the end of our lives, all we have to do is walk over a simple, easy bridge built out of God's love and held together by Jesus' sacrifice. Another stark contrast is how the forgiven slave treats another person who owes him money. Here's a man who has been forgiven an unpayable debt, who shows no mercy to another who also owes an overwhelming debt. After all, the second slave didn't owe 10,000 talents, but 100 denarii is more than most people that day could come up with, more than most people made in a year. Now, it's easy for us to look at laid out like this and say, what kind of a jerk is that first slave for doing what he did for doing something so cruel after someone else forgave him for something even worse? But the fact is, when we refuse to forgive others for their sins against us, we're doing the very same thing, aren't we? 
Now I want to pause for a second and say this. It is extremely important when talking about forgiveness to make sure that you all understand something. First of all, forgiveness is a process that usually does not happen immediately after someone has harmed you. It takes time to heal from the wounds that people inflict. And forgiveness should come after healing has taken place. Forgiveness also does not allow another person to continue harming you over and over again. For example, a woman who has been abused physically or emotionally by her husband does not have to stay with that person in order to forgive him. If the abuse does not stop, forgiveness does not mandate you stay in a dangerous situation. You can remove yourself from the danger and then release that person from hatred and from your anger and even from your fear once you're safe. Okay, so I just, I just want to make sure that the sermon about forgiving others as God has forgiven us does not get confused with the often inaccurate narrative that either guilts people into feeling badly because their forgiveness is not an immediate reaction to harmful behavior, or that a person has to stay in an abusive situation to prove that they are, in fact, a good Christian. Amen? So with that in mind, let's now talk about forgiving others, okay? That moment of grace that the king had for his slave was not a one-off situation. It was meant to inspire a way of life. A life given in grace is supposed to then spend a lifetime offering grace to others. That means forgiving people for their various infractions, big and small. Do you often bring up the past when arguing with your spouse? Do you hold past wrongs against them forever and ever, amen? Or with a sibling, or with a child, or with a friend? Do you judge harshly the actions of others? Do you hold grudges? Do you get mad at people who cut you off in traffic, or do you try to assume first that that person must have an emergency? Do you forgive others when they wrong you? Well, those were, I guess, examples of small infractions that we can forgive. But what does this kind of mercy look like on a larger scale? I'm going to give you a few examples. You have an abusive spouse who hurts you physically, emotionally, or both on a regular basis. I've often said that it's impossible to forgive past wrongs when that person continues to repeat those wrongs over and over again, right? Like ripping off the scab of a wound, it never fully heals. But once the abuse stops, or once you get away from the abuse, you can finally begin to heal inside and out. And you can eventually get to a place where you can let go of your hurt and your anger, your feelings of betrayal, and so on and so forth. You can forgive your spouse for their brokenness. And you can be free of the negative feelings that that person gave to you in the first place. If someone steals from you, 
a small sum or a large sum. You can choose to be vindictive. You can insist that the person be hunted down and punished. Sure, you want to get your belongings back, of course. That is understandable, but you can choose to give mercy to the thief as well. To release them from punishment for what, that they, for what they have done. You can also choose to release your anger towards them, your feelings of animosity, judgment, resentment, and even hatred. And you can free them and yourself from judgment for what they have done. You hear that? You can free yourself from judgment for what they have done. When we judge others, when we hold others in anger and, and harsh feelings, it keeps us imprisoned as much as it does them. Have you ever had a painful argument with a friend? You know, the kind of argument where things are said that can never be unsaid? Friends are often the people who know you the best. In my case, sometimes this is my sister. So these people who know you best, they are also the people who know what to say that can hurt you the most. So when in the heat of the argument is over and when the anger is gone, what you're left with is just plenty of hurt feelings. Your friend might apologize, but you might be tempted to hold on to your anger, to push your friend, to punish your friend for the terrible things that they said. Or you can remember how God forgave you when you did what you did. And you can forgive your friend as well. Or what about a parent who is, um, let's say, less than stellar? I mean, every parent has the potential to accidentally cause damage that'll send an adult child into therapy, right? I mean, that's pretty common. And we need to forgive our parents for those things. But then what about a parent who really hurts you? The parent who rejects you? The parent who tries to change you because they don't like who you are? The parent who causes you physical, emotional, spiritual, and psychological harm. Again, sometimes you have to create distance between yourself and that parent. But once you do, you can begin to move towards forgiving them for their brokenness. Because being angry at an abusive parent, even after the abuse, abuse is long over, just allows that parent to continue to have power over you. When you forgive them, you also release yourself from that bondage that they once held over you. And finally, what about being judged and ridiculed and abused and ostracized by a Christian or a group of Christians in the name of Jesus? To me, that seems like an extra betrayal because Christians are supposed to be loving and kind and gracious, right? Christians are supposed to be followers of Christ, and so their actions sort of feel like they're coming straight from the big guy himself, don't you think? And when a whole group of Christians, like a whole church or a whole denomination, band together against you and become abusive towards you, actually, it is easy to get confused about who really is hurting you. Is it other people, or is it Jesus? 
Who is the abuser? It can get very confusing when it's a Christian group. Well, once again, forgiveness usually requires one to remove oneself from the abusive situation first. Either you stop going to church for a while or while you find or you find a church family that actually tries to live out Christ's call to love God and neighbor. And I said try because there is no perfect church. And if you look for a perfect church, you will never find one. But if you find a church that tries, that tries to be loving and tries to be kind and graceful and merciful to one another, that is a blessing. But bringing yourself to trust another church might be difficult when you're still bleeding from the wounds from the last one, right? So sometimes you just need to have a little space for a bit. That's okay. But it's important to remember that the people in that abusive church who called themselves followers of Christ are not actually Jesus Christ himself. They are not God. And they are not speaking for God. They are, in fact, committing the very same transgressions as the slave in the parable. There they are, forgiven by God, turning on their fellow human being and not offering grace to others. So when the church becomes abusive, we must first forgive God because, well, well, God never did anything to you in the first place. So we've got to let any anger towards God go. And then once we're safely away from that group, we must forgive the Christians as well. We forgive them because God has forgiven us. And anything that needs to be dealt with will take place between them and God anyway. The important thing is that we not let our anger at broken Christians derail our relationship with our Creator. Forgiveness can be given in a moment and sometimes forgiveness is a process that we must go through to be able to forgive. But God wants us to be people of grace. God has forgiven us for our many, many transgressions against God, against others, and even against ourselves. And so God wants us to be the type of people who forgive as well. Love begets love. Grace begets grace. God wants the grace that has been given to us to grow and spread beyond us, out into the world. The kingdom of God is founded on the principles of grace, and it requires all of its citizens to live in it and to freely give grace to others. God's realm is one of pure freedom and forgiveness is freedom. Not only is the person who is forgiven freed from the bondage of their sins, but the person who forgives is freed from the bondage of their anger and hurt. So let us walk in grace together as followers of Christ, okay? Let us forgive as we are forgiven and let us be free from the bondage of sin once and for all. Amen? Amen. Know the silence, know the peace, know the empty hands. 
Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, tells the story of the last 12 hours of Jesus' life. In one scene, Gibson uses a poignant flashback to paint an incredible picture of forgiveness and grace. The scene has no words, but uses intense slow-motion footage and haunting music to capture the deep emotion of Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees and Mary in John chapter 8. The scene begins in the courtyard where Jesus has just been scourged and Mary Magdalene stoops down to wipe the blood, his blood, off the stones. As she crawls about on her hands and knees weeping, Mary remembers a time when she was on her knees in another courtyard. The scene flashes back to a crowded, dusty courtyard. An angry crowd of Pharisees approaches with stones in hand. Before the mob can get near, the camera pans out at ground level to show a hand draw a deep line in the sand. The camera pans back further to show Jesus now writing in the sand and the crowd slowly dropping their stones. As Jesus stands, relief on his face, we see Mary Magdalene's hand reach out towards his feet from where she lies on the ground. As she comes to her knees, Jesus graciously reaches down and pulls her up. Even though her face is cut up from her rough treatment at the hands of the crowd, Jesus' warm eyes lock onto hers. She understands what Jesus is offering. And then the scene switches back to Mary Magdalene in the stone courtyard with tears streaming down her face as she wipes up Jesus' blood. It's clear that her great love for Jesus comes from the great forgiveness she has experienced. We have all received that same forgiveness because Jesus' sacrifice was for all of us. May we approach the communion table with as much reverence and grief as Mary Magdalene approached Jesus' blood on those cobbled stones. On the night when the Lord was betrayed, he took the bread, blessed it, and said, This is my body broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, blessed it, and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let us pray. Forgive us our sins, O God, and wash us clean of our transgressions. Bless us as we eat this bread and drink of this cup, and transform us with your grace. Amen. Come and eat the body of Christ, the bread of heaven.
the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. As you go from this place, forgive as you have been forgiven, love as you are loved, change the world as you have been changed, and go in peace. Amen.